0: An island in the Pacific, and everything about it is terrific. I got the sun to tan me, palms to fan me, and an occasional man. Murphy. Who is it? Maggie. Yeah, I saw him. He left here a couple of hours ago with that bunch of backslappers and Alvarez. Oh. Mercy, I think i ought to tell you. You know, Skid has a perfect right to do as he pleases. We're not married. We just told you that. Yeah. I kind of guessed that. You're in love with him. I guess that too. Yes, I'm in love with him. Mercy, what is it with Skid? Every once in a while I get the crazy idea he's in love with me. And every time that happens, he acts as if he's sore about it. I can't figure Kid. I can. You're good, for him, see? and that's tough on a guy like Skid. Maggie, take my advice and clear out. Way out. You're listening to episode 63 of Sassmouth's Dame's podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. Carol Lombard was 28 years old when she made Swing High, Swing Low, which was released in 1937. In 1941, she had selected her role as Maggie King in this picture as her personal favorite. Carol demonstrates an astonishing degree of professional craft and control for her age. Other actors took decades to develop such an easy manner in front of the camera. She swings high from zany, screwball hijinks to low heartbreak and tragedy, with the languorous ease of stepping into one of Travis Banton's slinky gowns. She has more range than the trumpet player she takes up with, appropriately named Skid Johnson, played by Fred McMurray. The opening scene proves that you can spark romance in any setting, even when you're hemmed in by steel bulkheads and the grim uniform presence of a colonial military base. License Settings prepares you for the brutal truth hidden inside a gorgeous picture, that you could love a man, Become indispensable to him. Do everything in your power to make him a success, and he will forget you as soon as he leaves you on the horizon. Carol must have gotten a kick out of going from a trash heap in My Man Godfrey to the dingy start for Swing High, Swing Low. In fact, Swing High, Swing Low seems like it plays with the idea as if someone at Paramount said, what if Irene Bullock stayed in the Forgotten Man shantytown with Godfrey instead of going home to the family mansion uptown? There's no trash heap here, but the opening is hideous. A woman sits under perm rods connected to that octopus-type machine while Carol Lombard watches their ship enter the Panama Canal. The older woman declares that she hates the site and doesn't care to see it again. She tells Carol that all she's seeing is machinery covered in water. The cranes and rigs along the canal have invaded the island landscape like an army of ants who gouge the earth for a new colony. Carol sticks her head out, framed not by the sea, the sun, or foliage, but by a large row of steel bolts that line the ship's bulk. Fred paces on sentry duty on land. He watches her, and he tries to get her to agree to go on a date. He asks if the rest of her looks as good. Carol lobs back a doozy. No, I weigh 200 pounds and I don't wear shoes. He laughs. Of course he laughs. Skid may think he's the life of the party, but this is a woman's picture, and the good lines are saved for Carol. To Fred McMurray on duty marching along the canal, she must look like a rare orchid stuck in sheets of steel. Director Mitch Lyson removes the stereotypes about paradise for his picture that blends screwball and melodrama more daringly and efficiently than any other Hollywood production from the 1930s. Instead of cliché palm trees, beaches, quaint folkloric costumes, or drinks with little umbrellas, Lyson's set design borrows industrial gloom from the locks, or that jailhouse, and a dirty shack with dishes piled in the sink, rather than the pompous moon Betty Grable sung about later in Down Argentine Way. Visually, as their relationship grows, the maison scene does its level best to offer a sharp contrast. Carol and Fred fall in love despite the shabby downturn setting, When you're crazy in love, nothing else matters, not a broken sooty stove or nightclub where Santa sweats buckets. Lyson isn't interested in fairy tales for his realistic swing high, swing low. Carol plays Maggie King, who passes herself off as a beautician, along with her friend Ella, played by Jean Dixon, to gain passage to Panama on her way out to California. When she's caught out as an imposter, Franklin Pangborn, who never met a scene he couldn't steal, accuses her, you're not a beauty operator at all, as though it were a crime on par with baby killer. He asks, did she have to hitchhike across my customers' faces? Maggie soon meets Fred McMurray Skid Johnson on his last day in the Army. Skid poses as a tour guide. When the ladies realize who he is, he offers them a night of fun. He brings along his roommate for Ella, Charles Butterworth, who plays a hypochondriac piano player named Harry. At a nightclub, when the subject turns to the trumpet and music, Carol puts on her best worm-eating face and fires off reasons for her her intense dislike of the noise it creates. She loves music. Give her music. Give her a violin, she replies, but not a trumpet. Quiet-like, Fred picks up a horn. Well, he's not really playing it, but he looks convincing. Carol doesn't hide her surprise or delight at his skilled lips and fingers and the noise they make and makes the trumpet sound like she had never expected. During Skid's number, Maggie doesn't pay much attention to a wolf in a white suit who sidles up next to her, played by a very young Anthony Quinn. Unaware of Panamanian courtship rituals, Maggie takes off her hat without realizing that it's a signal that says she would be interested in dancing with any man. Or so the wolf claims when he puts the moves on her, en espanol. She's too busy watching Skid to notice. Things escalate as the men compete for Carol Lombard. Soon there's a big brawl and the police throw Skid and Maggie in the jailhouse. Maggie misses her boat while they're locked up overnight. She consents to move in with Skid and Harry, and it's a bachelor pad of Gruyere-induced nightmares. Viewers know she's falling for him, because otherwise she would have chanced swimming with the sharks, rather than piles of dirty dishes, clutter, and heaps of clothing. No wonder Harry's a germaphobe. He could have put the medicine cabinet full of bottles and tiny pillboxes in the bin had they just hired a maid. Skid needs to earn a living since he finished with the army. Maggie gives him a big pep talk and a plan. If he gets his horn out of the pawn shop, she'll get him a job in Murphy's nightclub. There's a fly in the ointment when Skid puts the money down on a cockfight instead. He loses the fin, or the fiver, when the bird takes a pecking and brings home the scrawny bird who becomes the shack mascot. They name him Butch. Maggie gets Skid a job in the local nightclub. They marry mostly because he can't stand the thought that the salesman who flirt with Maggie might get somewhere. When they shot the picture, the script called for Fred McMurray to say, I love you, will you marry me? Fred was still green as an actor, Mitch Lyson recalled, and couldn't get it right. He said that Fred was alibying all over the place. Fred claimed Skid would never say it that way. Rehearsals stalled until Mitch suggested that they get the camera rolling and see what happened. Out of nowhere, Fred improvised a great line. Gee, I'm kind of sick to my stomach, but will you marry me? He really got inside his character for the right tone of a spontaneous heel. There's also a lovely improvisational feeling when they come up with the song A Call to Arms. Charles Butterworth as Harry, the piano-playing man, was billed in Paramount's promotional materials as responsible for creating his own bits of business and dialogue. Here, he riffs off Carol and Fred like the three of them are a jazz combo. The trio test out the lyrics and the tune, and they build it up gradually. And it becomes the big duet which Maggie sings from the inside of Skid's arms as he plays the trumpet. Mitch Lyson made the right choice when he refrained from dubbing Carol's voice for the call-to-arms number, and others. When her natural voice falters, it brings out that shaky quality in her relationship with the trumpet player. Carol's voice amplifies the hard work she puts into him. After they marry, a talent scout who books gigs for New York has an eye on Skid, Maggie insists that Skid take the job. He's happy enough to stay where he is, but Maggie presses some ambition into him. She makes him a star, and Skid immediately forgets about her. Surely, this is one of Carol Lombard's finest performances. She deftly balances screwball antics from burning off a woman's hair in the opening scene to flirting with McMurray to when she shows you total devastation with her back to the camera. She is every woman who ever believed in a bum so much that she made the bum believe in himself. Her faith in Skid Johnson could move mountains. Look at the way Carol coaxes Skid into behaving like a stand-up guy rather than wallow in his base appetites. She shows him a path to success and takes him by the hand. When she finds him at the bar ordering a drink for Christmas, she tells him he's had enough. And when he complains that it's Christmas, she tells him about all the other recent excuses that he's been giving her. And before you know it, she says every day will be a holiday. And then where will we be? While she says it, Carol pats her hand over his mouth as though she were putting the stopper back in the bottle. As soon as he's on his own in New York, he's off the rails. A montage shows us a tower of champagne glasses, him at the fights, the clubs, all of which distract him like candy swinging over a baby carriage. He gambles away a wad of cash and shrugs, well, there goes Maggie's boat fare. While Maggie waits in Panama, Skid lives it up in New York with Anita Alvarez, a singer played by Dorothy L'Amour. Swing High, Swing Low would not be half as good without the supporting players, especially the women. Women like Cecil Cunningham as the club owner Murphy. As Murphy, Cecil Cunningham dresses like Lily Langtree if she ran a body house. Under a helmet of curls, she wears prim high-necked white blouses and heavy skirts with a purse pinned on her hip. In the scene where she meets Maggie, she's a study of the incongruous, a demure lace fan, a Gibson girl billowy blouse with a brooch fastened at her throat, as though she ran a finishing school for society daughters instead of a honky-tonk in Panama. She has a voice seasoned with gin and cigars. Murphy has a gaze that bores so deep, she could read the labels on your underwear. Murphy has been through the wars. She's a one-woman chorus when it comes to Skid Johnson. Each time she meets with Maggie, she tries to warn her off. My favorite scenes in the picture are between Carol Lombard and Cecil Cunningham. When they first meet, she offers Maggie a job, followed up with the gruff, I ain't begging you. When Maggie asks for a job for Skid Johnson, Murphy tells Maggie that Skid Johnson never had a responsibility in his life and that he wasn't going to bust up her place like he did that other joint. To seal the deal, Maggie lies on the spot, passing herself off as Skid's wife. Murphy hires the husband and the wife based on the lie. Maybe she doesn't even believe it. She has faith in Maggie's reformative powers, you sense that Murphy opens the register and hands over a fiver just to put a smile on Maggie's face. She's seen this routine before, hell, she probably lived it. Skid can't believe the cash in Maggie's hands or that Murphy was so accommodating. Maggie tells him that all women are romantic. Murphy? he asks, incredulous. One night, Murphy stands next to a table with the agent who books talent for New York City. He watches Skid performs with dollar signs in his eyes. Murphy warns the guy that Skid is under contract to her. Contracts can be broken, he replies. Yeah, so can Nex. Her voice is matter-of-fact, a tone that could be carrying the weather report. The booker wants to know what she means by that crack. Yours ain't exactly made of rubber, is it? She lets that observation hang in the air. In another scene, in the small hours long after the club has shuttered for the night, Maggie goes out to look for Skid, who's still out there somewhere prowling the night. She calls into Murphy. Murphy pulls up a tarp that covers a metal security gate that locks up the club. Maggie, upset, wonders why it seems like he loves her, and then he always gets sore about it. Murphy cuts to the chase. You're good for him, see? And that's tough on a guy like Skid. Murphy says, take my advice and clear out. Mitch Lyson recalled that he had trouble convincing Cecil Cunningham to be harsh with Carol on the scene. Cecil told the director, she's so beautiful and so pathetic, I just can't be tough with her. They worked it out by shooting over Carol's back and substituting dialogue. Maggie leaves dejected while Murphy returns to the inventory. She can count the bottles of brandy and Curacao just as easily as Broken Hearts. On Christmas, Murphy wears a heavy brocade gowns with a stiff, turned-up collar that looks like she's ready for Halloween at the Grand Guggenau Theater, introducing stage murders, more Countess Dracula than Mrs. Claus. She tells Skid that she won't prevent him from going to New York, because her contracts aren't worth the paper they're printed on. She knows exactly what he'll do once he's cut loose from Maggie. He'll self-destruct. In another scene, weeks have gone by and Skid still has not sent her the fare to join him in New York. Murphy passes Maggie. She's writing another letter. Quietly, Murphy asks, kind of carrying on a monologue, ain't you? It's more devastating than had she shouted something harsh. Murphy hands over the $125 so Maggie can join Skid in New York. She cares about her more than her husband. Jean Dixon is one of those supporting players that I always love to see in a picture. In Sadie McKee and She Married Her Boss, Jean Dixon plays an exquisite sidekick. In Swing High, Swing Low, she plays Ella, and like Murphy, she has Skid Johnson's number. She throws a lovesick millionaire at Maggie to wash the bad taste of a trumpet player out of her friend's mouth. Ella operates under the logic of woman's pictures of the Depression era. A rich husband solves all immediate problems. To round out the women in supporting roles, there's Dorothy L'Amour as a Class A man-trap, Anita Alvarez. In her memoir, Dot L'Amour expressed her gratitude to Carol for kindnesses large and small for blowing her lines when Dot did to make her feel more comfortable, for asking for advice on her own musical numbers, and to get Wally Westmore to fix Dot's eyebrows, which were too thin and would not look good on camera. Give me Dot Lamore cracking gum in a honking Brooklyn accent wearing sharply tailored suits and smart hats, please. She's the brash homewrecker who carries on the fine tradition from Claire Dodd and Gail Patrick. Dot's character, Anita Alvarez, may not have much empathy for Maggie King, but let's give her some credit. She wises up that the trumpet player just isn't worth it, a lesson Maggie never learns. The best woman's pictures from the 1930s had women in the company of other women. Often, their relationships and conversations carry the emotional temperature of a storyline, and Swing High, Swing Low is no exception. Travis Banton was at the top of his career in Paramount when he dressed Carol for Swing High, Swing Low. He made $1,250 a week and was beloved by the stars he dressed. When Banton arrived at Paramount in 1924, Howard Greer had been head designer, but he soon took over. Banton made his reputation by collaborating with stars such as Pola Negri, Clara Bow, Marlena Dietrich, and Claudette Colbert, as well as Carol Lombard. His designs for Carol in this picture are all standouts. Even when we don't see them for very long on screen, they linger in memory. Carol's showgirl outfit to work in Murphy's nightclub is a particular standout. I'm sure it didn't look like very much when it was constructed. Some dark ostrich feathers in a headdress around a beaded skirt that cut away in fr- in front of the skirt and a little bralette. But watch the way it looks on screen as Carol moves across the dance floor. It's the definitive showgirl look, flashy, but highlights the woman who wears it, rather than blotting her out. Carol Lombard, dressed as a showgirl, is the wet dream of Florence Zegfeld and Busby Berkeley. She's a star, no matter in a Caribbean dive or on Broadway. Travis Banton once said, you could throw a bolt of fabric at Carol, and whichever way it landed, she looked smart. His words are the governing logic behind the gown she wears when she changes out of her showgirl outfit into her one for her second job in Murphy's. The second job is arguably the one that's more tiring than performing in the floor show. After the showgirl ensemble, he puts her in a very simple gown. Carol plays a bee girl, a woman paid to sit with men and encourage them to order expensive champagne rather than the cheap scotch the grubby babbits prefer. Murphy pays a 25% commission on the bubbles. It sounds like nice work until you realize, as we see in the scene, that Carol must listen to a man old enough to be her father drone on and on about hangers by the gross while he tries to cop a feel. In the scene, Carol's gown is so simple. It's a satin bias cut, low in front and back. It's so low in front that you can tell there's no room for a bra. And you wonder how the gown did not cause the production code office to shout indecency. Travis Banton outfitted another simple yet stylish dress for Carol in the early scenes that's exactly the type that comes to mind when I think of her outstanding fashions in Paramount. It's an everyday dress with a long row of tiny cloth-covered buttons that runs from neckline to waist. A little fluttery, organdy bow collar, it's cut straight and narrow through her long waist. It's a fashionable dress that women would have been proud to have in the closet. It's the kind of dress that testifies to a woman's competence. You could meet the day with it, no matter what happened. Today, it still looks fresh and modern. It would make those heavy satin frocks from Vampire's Girlfriend, that label, look exactly like what they are overdone and gimmicky. Carol had limited the number of reporters allowed on set because she wanted to avoid questions about her relationship with Clark Gable. Their relationship was gossip material from the moment they hooked up at the Mayfair Ball in 1936, but it wasn't made official since Clark was still technically married to his second wife, Raya. Clark and Raya haggled over the you know, state of their union until she finally agreed to a divorce in return for a huge cash settlement in 1939. One reporter, Jeanette Mann, was admitted to the set one day. The journalist watched Carol transition from joking around off-camera to an emotional scene where she cried once the cameras began rolling. Mian was struck by the abrupt shift in Carol's moods and asked her how she could shift from laughing one minute to crying the next. Carol shrugged and replied, The scene itself does it. That's all there is to it. Just as easily she could have told the reporter, It's called acting, honey. Carol was a pro. She did what the scene needed. She certainly did not carry her tears around, pulling clumps of hair and beating her chest. During production, Carol Lombard's affair with Clark Gable was still in its early stages. One week before Carol started filming Swing High, Swing Low, Gable had begun Parnell, which was a rare misfire critically and commercially. When they were both busy working on their own projects, they figured that if they matched their work schedules, it would synchronize their time off together. They first hooked up during the Mayfair Ball in 1936, the one that Carol hosted, and set the dress theme of white gowns for women and white tie for men. And that night has now become enshrined in Hollywood legend. They had worked together in 1932 for No Man of Her Own, the only picture they made together, when Carol played a small-town librarian who falls for a city slicker and marries him, not knowing that he's a professional card sharp. At the time, Carol was married to William Powell, so she didn't fall for Gable's charms. Gable must have made at least a past. According to Gossip, the only co-star he never tried to bed was Jeanette MacDonald. Carol kept it professional in 1932, but she did take the piss by staging publicity where she handed Clark a 10-pound ham wrapped with his picture plastered on top. She knew good copy when she saw it. When she took a second look at Clark, that night when she wanted to knock the stuffing out of Norma Shearer for wearing a red gown, Clark had certainly grown in stature in Hollywood cocksure, wealthy, sought after and side over, Clark Gable acted like the most eligible bachelor in the American film industry, even though he was still legally married. Who could blame Carol for falling for him? But his reputation preceded him. As Joan Crawford once put it, Clark didn't even have to ask for it. Women stepped into his path on the regular. He exuded so much sexual charisma on screen that many a dame wanted a sample. But did Carol ever second-guess choosing Gable? Did her closest friend, Madeline Fields, or Fieldsy, the pet name Carol gave her, ever pull her aside and say, Gable, are you sure about this? Coupling up with the King of Hollywood must have presented a moment of hesitation. He was a notorious swordsman, To say that Clark Gable had many dalliances with women is an understatement on par with noting that W.C. Fields liked beer, Raoul Walsh liked to place the odd bet on the ponies, or Mae West liked diamonds. Not only was he a womanizer, but he had a reputation for being kept by wealthy older women. Did Carol see any parallels between Skid Johnson and her new beau? Gable wasn't as dissolute as Fred McMurray's character, but Gable wasn't exactly a late tippler. I tend to think that if you have a bar in your bedroom and walking downstairs is too far to go for a drink, then maybe that's a sign that he would rather pour out a big brown one at the end of the day than talk to you. In one scene, during Swing High, Swing Low, Jean Dixon tells Carol that if she needed a doctor, Skid Johnson would stop on the way for a crap game. He was unreliable. He would let her down when she needed him. When it comes to Gable, between the bottle and the dames, did she worry Clark might do the same? Carol made herself indispensable to Clark, just as Maggie King did for Skid Johnson. In 1937, Carroll was more successful than Gable in terms of a more lucrative contract and creative control. Carroll signed a deal for $150,000 a picture. Over an MGM, Clark made $4,000 a week, which worked out to be about $160,000 a year. If he made two pictures a year, that was only $80,000 a picture. Carol Lombard enhanced Gable's career by example. Known for going over her contracts with a magnifying glass and conducting shrewd negotiations with the studio through her agent Myron Selznick, Carol was smart about her career. In addition to her business acumen, Carol also influenced Clark to be more ambitious in his career and match the level of of professional commitment that she brought to her work. When many people talk about the history of their relationship, they seem to place all the power with Clark Gable, when the truth is, Carol Lombard was a bigger star. He had a host of tawdry stories from his past that clung to him, from when he mowed down an innocent pedestrian when he was drunk behind the wheel, or when he was kept by rich older women, the scandal of a child with Loretta Young, or challenged with a paternity suit from another woman, he generally could not keep it zipped. Again, he may not have been as bad as Skid Johnson, but Carol certainly had her hands full with Gable. Hollywood stars who have enjoyed a significant career on the stage had a habit of reminding you of that fact, and often they would endorse the stage as a more organic form of the craft than their own work on film. By contrast, Barbara Stanwyck rarely mentioned her stage experience, especially the dramatic roles she did outside the Follies and other musical reviews. She had critics returning to see her give another performance in her breakout production The Noose. They returned just to have a good cry. When she played the lead role in Burlesque, which opened in September 1927, she made such an impression that people who had seen the play recalled that her powerful role that decades later. May Clark, Stanwick's roommate at the time, was blown away by the way Stanwick cried out, out on stage. May said in the scene where Hal Skelly performs a grotesque version of the wedding march, Barbara Stanwyck's character, Bonnie, bangs her fists on the piano, screaming, stop him, stop him, stop all of you. May recalled that she had never heard one person get as many vibrations into her voice. It was like listening to a symphony chorus instead of just one person speaking. Joan Blondell was also in the audience for one of Stanwyck's performances in burlesque. She remembered, I was never so overcome in my life. She said of Stanwyck and her co-star Hal Skelly, what they did to an audience we should be so lucky to have today. Never again have I experienced anything like it. Stanwyck made me laugh, cry, want to hug her. In unison, reviewers toasted Stanwyck's vibrant emotional power. Later, when Hollywood snapped up the rights, the director John Cromwell had argued to keep Stanwyck in the leading role next to her stage co-star Hal Skelly, but the producers objected that she lacked the experience for the camera. The studio went with Nancy Carroll instead, and the result, The Dance of Life from 1929, lacks the potency that Stanwyck brought to the, the role. My Woman, from 1933, uses many of the key plot elements from the original source, but gives the story a typical pre-code revision in the woman's favor. Helen Twelve Trees plays a nightclub singer in Panama who finagles an audition with ABC Radio for her husband, a burlesque comic played by Wallace Ford. When Wallace Ford runs off with Claire Dodd, Helen Twelve Trees gets some consolation prize. The head of NBC Radio, a millionaire who's crazy about her, played by Victor Jory, not too shabby. The production was remade in 1948 as When My Baby Smiles at Me, starring Betty Grable and Dan Daly. The standout, though, among them is Swing High, Swing Low. It's the best of the versions, not just for the performances, direction, setting, and costume design, but also for the script by Virginia Van Upp and Oscar Hammerstein. Virginia Van Upp made a successful career in Paramount writing pictures for Carol Lombard. Harry Cohn, head of Columbia Pictures, liked them so much that he lured Van Upp away as an executive producer to do the same for Rita Hayworth. Hollywood moguls were not in a habit of praising women they had under contract, let alone to have put it in writing. In his book, Adolf Zucker reserved unqualified respect for Carol Lombard. He praises her unwavering fortitude when it came to her career. Zucor wrote that had, had there been a poll conducted in the studio for Queen of the Lot, it would have gone without question to Carol Lombard. She was interested in everyone in the studio, no matter who they were or what their job, and everyone vied to be in one of her productions because she made such a connection with cast and crew. Zucor said she was known among the actors for enlarging the roles of supporting players rather than cutting them down, as was often the case among the stars who wanted to dominate every scene. Zucor wrote that she could be very demanding because she expected to have a voice in her productions. Imagine, just imagine how funny that would sound if you said it about Gary Cooper or Clark Gable that they wanted a voice in their own pictures. Zukor explained that Carol wanted a say with story development, direction, casting, and many other things, and she got it too, Zukor recalled, to a degree that astonished other contract players. He credited the fact that Carol got what she wanted to her knowledge of film production, that she knew exactly what she wanted and she knew why it was important. Once she received what she wanted, she didn't abuse it, he said. Dottie Ponadell, the makeup artist in Paramount, beloved by Marlena Dietrich, Mae West, Paula Goddard, and others, noted that one of the reasons Carol was beloved by the crews was because she never stood on formality. She had a great sense of humor, and she was generous. Each day, she treated the boys to coffee and donuts in the morning and sandwiches and Cokes at lunch. Thanks so much for listening. The books that helped me write this episode are Mitchell Lyson, Hollywood Director, by David Chirichetti, Screwball, The Life of Carol Lombard by Larry Swindell, My Side of the Road by Dorothy L'Amour, Carol Lombard, 20th Century Star by Michelle Morgan, Script Girls, Women Screenwriters in Hollywood by Lizzie Frank, about Face, The Life and Times of Dottie Ponadell Makeup Artist to the Stars, by Dorothy Ponadell and Meredith Ponadell Clark Gable, A Biography, by Warren Harris. The Public is Never Wrong, My 50 Years in Hollywood, by Adolf Zucour. Starring Miss Barbara Stanwyck, by Ella Smith. Join me next time for episode 64 when I talk about Deborah Carr and Beloved Infidel from 1959. Carr plays Sheila Graham, one of the most powerful columnists in Hollywood, next to Luella Parsons and Hedda Hopper. Beloved Infidel tells the story of Sheila Graham's romance with F. Scott Fitzgerald, who's played by Gregory Peck. Thanks for listening.